0: to Schweinitz and on behalf of the Dialogue Foundation Board, I'm pleased to welcome you to Dialogue Gospel Study for Sunday, July 23rd, 2023 with Dr. Ryan Davis. Dialogue Chair Chris Kimball is co-hosting today and Michael Austin is running tech in the background. Whether you're a longtime listener or have just found Dialogue Gospel Study, we invite you to check out all that dialoguejournal.com. There you can find previous gospel study lessons, other offerings like Dialogue Out Loud and Dialogue Book Report, as well as links to all the great shows in the Dialogue Podcast Network, including Caroline Klein's This Global Latter-day Life. You can also find the latest issue of the journal, along with the entire Dialogue archive. That's more than five decades of fabulous dialogue scholarship, poetry, essays, sermons, fiction, and art. In the very first issue of Dialogue, founder Eugene England wrote, my faith encourages my curiosity and awe. It thrusts me out into relationship with all creation and encourages me to enter into dialogue. Faith and curiosity and awe continue to guide the work we do. Find out how you can support that work and secure the future of the oldest independent Mormon studies journal, which continues to publish pathbreaking award-winning scholarship at the donate. For those live on Zoom today, as always, you're invited to post respectful and relevant comments and questions in the chat. We'll also follow along on Facebook, where we are running a live stream. Our teacher today is, Ryan, is Dr. Ryan Davis. Ryan writes about ethics, political philosophy, and philosophy of religion. He's interested especially in how the autonomy of persons is related to facts about what people are morally obligated to do. Recently, he's been thinking about how persuasion works and what makes it morally okay to try to convince someone of something, whether philosophy should aim at the truth, and friendship bracelets on Taylor Swift's Eras Tour. His family hails from Idaho's Snake River Valley. Now Ryan usually lives in Provo, Utah, where he annually competes in the Pioneer Day Pie Baking Contest. We'll have to see how that turns out. If you have suggestions on any of these topics or a secret fly fishing location, he'd be happy to hear from you. Uh, he's on Twitter at Ryan Fishes Probo. Um, maybe threads too now? No? <laughs> Uh, Also joining us uh, to offer an opening prayer and perhaps some thoughts along the way is Dr. Jessica Priest, professor of political science at BYU and Ryan's co-author and friend. Jessica has two dogs, six chickens, and during the summer loves making weird types of preserves like tart, cherry, cardamom jam, or apricot mustard. Uh, Despite her lack of original insights about Taylor Swift, Ryan is closing prayer, and may also share some insights as well. Nathan is a senior at BYU studying political science. He's been a TA for Dr. Davis for several years, and like his professor, is also a philosophically inclined Kantian bird watcher from Northern Arizona. He currently is applying to law schools in D.C. His favorite non-Agerians are M. Russell Ballard and Sandra Day O'Connor, and like every Davis TA, he's a huge fan of Taylor Swift. Red is her favorite album. There may be some debate about that, I don't know, And TA meetings. As with any Latter-day Saints scripture study class, the views expressed today are those of the individual teacher and participants. They do not necessarily reflect those of the Dialogue Foundation, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, Brigham Young University, or any other organization. The music to start us off is not Ryan's favorite Taylor Swift song, so sorry to disappoint, I'm not sure. He could have picked just one. Maybe he'll share that. Uh, but we do have uh, Ben and Tom Abbott rendering O Ye Mountains High.
1: O Ye Mountains High Where the clear blue sky Arches over the veils of the free Breezes blow and the clear streamlets flow, How I've longed to your bosom to flee. O Zion, dear Zion, land of the free, Now my own mountain home, unto thee I have come. All my fond hopes are centered in Thee. Though the great and the wise all Thy beauties despise, To the humble and pure Thou art dear, Though the haughty He may smile and the wicked revile, Yet we love thy glad tidings to thee O oh, Zion, dear Zion, home of the free. Though thou wert forced to fly to thy chambers on high, Yet we'll share joy and sorrow with thee. strengthen thy feet on the necks of thy foes thou shalt tread and their silver and gold as the prophets have told shall be brought to adorn thy fair head O Zion dear Zion home of Free. Soon thy tower shall shine with a splendor divine and eternal thy glory shall be Hear our voices we'll raise and we'll sing to thy praise Sacred home of the prophets of God deliverance is nigh, thy oppressors shall die, and the Gentiles shall bow neath thy rod. O Zion, dear Zion, land of the free, in thy temples we'll bend all thy rights. We'll defend, and our home shall be ever with thee. jessica
2: our father in heaven we're grateful for the chance to gather today as saints eager to study the scriptures and um and and learn more how to uh, be better people and uh, we ask that the spirit will be able to work through ryan and within us and we say these things in the name of jesus christ amen All
3: right, Ryan, it's all you. Oh, thank you. Um, well, thank you so much for having me. Thanks to Rebecca for inviting me, and also thanks to the the Abbots for that performance. So, Oi Bowens High is my favorite hymn of the Restoration, and I could not find any rendering of it on YouTube, and that was just beautiful. Um, And uh, there's actually quite a bit of textual detail that was interesting to me at that performance as well, which I loved. Uh, So that just made my whole morning. What a great, uh, what a great Pioneer Day gift to me. So thank you. Um, I am happy to be here today. That's the way members of our faith are supposed to begin anything. So now I feel like I've officially started. Um, I'm going to share my slides. And as usual in the Zoom era, I'm wondering if I'm succeeding. Good. From the beginning. All right. So today is about Acts. Um, And fittingly for the Book of Acts, I'm going to start by wishing you a happy Pioneer Day, um, which will be relevant. So here's some pictures I took on Pioneer Day. I'll just give you a second to look at them. Um, They're not all pictures I took. Uh, because I want to start by asking our panelists and you, other other folks, the following questions. Um, Are you doing anything for Pioneer Day this weekend? And the way that I like doing this, I'm going to narrate this like it's a radio drama, is I'm going to ask everyone when I ask these questions to raise their hands, yes or no, so that we don't know how the other people are disclosing before we disclose. Are the panelists willing to play along with this game? And then in the radio drama fashion, I'm going to narrate because I, I guess you can't see everyone uh, except me. I'm going to narrate to you what what happens, and also if I am interested in any expressions on people's faces, I will editorialize those myself as well if I can get permission to do that. Um, so, are people doing uh, are people doing anything for Pioneer this weekend? Raise your hand if the answer is yes. For me, it's a yes. No, it's a split. It's a split. And uh, and so, relatedly, um, my next question is: Is is there to so the the panels, so just to think about, is there any connection between your religious membership or identity and your political membership or identity? Um, now, I'm going to do it again. So now, raise your raise your hand if the answer is yes. <laughs> raise your hand if the answer is no oh there's a split split there as well does anyone want to i really i'm one of those people just so everyone knows i really like other people talking as well so feel free to interrupt me at any time does anyone want to say anything about what they see as the connection or the why it's important that there's not a connection for them
4: well i will i will give the first contrarian view which is basically i grew up in wisconsin um, multi-generation Mormon, but grew up in Wisconsin, and this holiday always seemed like I, I wanted nothing to do with it. It was not relevant to my life, politically, religiously, at all. And and those people out in Utah were weird.
0: <laughs> so That's... I grew up, so I grew up in Fairbanks, Alaska, and the twenty-fourth of July is a big holiday there because it's the founding of the town. But it's all related to like gold rush stuff. And you have, um, you know, uh, an old time kind of traveling jail with uh, with women dressed up as a 19th century prostitute and and kind of uh, Western sheriffs and uh, gold panning activities and things like that. So, um, but it seemed really special that my town also celebrated this holiday that I was connected to because of my own pioneer ancestors, you know, that had traveled to Utah. Um, yeah, that's yeah. my funny Pioneer Day.
3: No, that's a great, that's a great Pioneer Day story. I raised this question and I appreciate both of those responses. Those are both sort of characteristic, I think, of of two kinds of, of attitudes that I think are um, that other people sh- other people will share, I expect. If we if I could pull the room, I would. But I think that there'll be people on both of those on both of those sides. I also have family in uh, Wisconsin, and so I see the other boat. Right now, let's see. Now I'm trying to move this slide. There we go. For many people, I think, um, especially on Pioneer, if you are doing something on Pioneer Day, I invite you to consider. If there's any uh, markers of political identity that uh, you encounter. and my hypothesis is that you might have.
2: Did I say something, Ryan? Yes. Okay. So I, A, my mom's birthday is the 24th of July. So that always got, you know, there was always something going on there. But I spent yesterday at my grandmother's grandfather's family reunion john w hess and his seven wives and uh and and so it was the it was it's, it's an interesting event um but one of the things that they talked about at this event was his participation in the mormon battalion that was like a big marker of thing that they talked about so that is my connection between those two questions of uh pioneer day and uh patriotism and that's, that's interesting. Very quickly, I think,
3: as the, as the, as the frontier church developed, um, there's sort of like these, these markers of patriotism emerged pretty, pretty rapidly. And it's interesting that that's the thing that they still was salient to them with that sort of like part of, uh, part of the memory is his, is his, uh, uh, includes his, his activity for the country. Um, so, yeah. Um, How is this connected to the Book of Acts? Well, in the Book of Acts, as I read it, and now I'm going to have a sort of parenthetical disclosure. It's literally parenthetical because I'm interrupting my own sentence. Um, uh, I am not a classicist or a historian um, or a theologian. And at this point, you might be wondering, well, why are we listening to this guy? But um, uh, the answer is the same as in any Sunday class, which is I have no qualifications at all that entitle me to talk about any of these things. So I speak as one of the scribes, um, not as one having any authority uh, at all. So uh, hopefully some of our panelists will disagree with things I say. So close parenthetical. Um, but here's my take then on a sort of like my big picture overview of Acts is the gospel is going forth um, through the world. And uh, the a lot of the book of Acts is about how that's happening. And then a lot of the the, the back half of the book of Acts is about what that means for members of uh, the Christian faith, um, the, for the missionaries and their converts, um, within the communities that they have So as the Gospels go over, they're encountering other cultural groups, other political groups. And so a lot of Acts is about the, the, the there's a lot of Roman officials, um, uh, centurions, um, leaders, and their responses to the movement. And so um, it sort of brings to, the co- brings to the fore a lot of these same questions about the connection between changes in re- ide- religious identity and changes in religious identity and political identity. So I'm going to first talk about the setup for Acts in the final two chapters of Luke um, and what we might anticipate in Acts, given what Luke says at the end of his book. Then I'm going to talk about how uh, the book of Acts, and this is this should say Acts 2-4, to already finding typos to this, um, how the book of Acts makes good on some of those promissory notes that we see at the end of Luke, And then I'm going to sort of ask us to think a little bit about Paul in Athens and Paul in Ephesus. All right. That's my plan. Sound sound good? Sound good, everyone? (laughs) Thank you. I'm one of those terrible teachers. I require a lot of affirmation. So I really appreciate seeing your encouraging faces. Um, All right. So what about the setup? I'm going to say there, there are two things. There are two sort of bits of text at the end of Luke that give us an indication for how Luke might think about his second volume after jesus has left it's just the apostles they're going to go forth and act what are they going to do what are the clues that sort of jesus gives before his departure about how we might think about their missions all right and the specific questions i'm going to ask you at the end of this section are what's the meaning of the rending of the veil in luke 23 um and in luke 24 How does Jesus encourage the disciples to think about the relationship between himself and the Scriptures? All right. Those are going to be the two two questions that come out of this. So, brace yourself. So, Matthew 27. This is the rending of the veil in Matthew. Um, Jesus, when he had cried again with a loud voice, yielded up the ghost. And behold, the veil of the temple was rent in twain from top to bottom, and the earth did quake, and the rocks rent. And here's the equivalent passage in Luke. And the sun was darkened, and the veil of the temple was rent in the midst. And when Jesus had cried with a loud voice, he said, Father, into thy hands I I commend my spirit. Having said thus, he gave up the goat. So notice a curious thing happens, which is that Luke changes the order between the death of Jesus and the rending of the veil at the temple. And as we've seen now so far, Luke makes you know just think back to your reading of the Gospels. Luke makes a bunch of changes to Matthew. Um, uh, some people see Luke as a kind of as motivated by a kind of wanting to wanting to tweak a few things in his understanding of Jesus from Matthew. Um, and here's one of them where there's a there's a distinct change in the order. Um, and so my question is going to be, I won't ask you to comment on this question yet, because we'll sort of like, I'll see if, it, if the text can deliver us to anything. But just to kind of get you thinking about it is, um, do you imagine that, um, what do you, Im- so first of all, so two questions. What do you imagine is the meaning of the rending of the veil of the temple connected to Jesus' death? Or is there a connection? And second, does Luke think about it differently than Matthew? Does Luke want to, does what, Does he want you to understand that in a metaphorical way differently than Matthew might have wanted? Does that question make sense enough for me to go on just to kind of have it in the background? Never, never mind. Okay, good. My professional academic friends who I'm looking at are saying it's a good enough question, so I'll take that. All of these people are really excellent teachers on this, so I feel some self-consciousness in are looking at me, so... Um, appreciate you doing this. Thing. All right, so here we go. Now, here's the next bit of text. This is Luke 24. I love Luke for I think Luke 24 is one of the most amazing chapters in the in all of our scriptures. So you remember, Jesus is walking with the two disciples, Cleopas and his companion, uh, on the road to Emmaus. Um, they're, they're sort of surprised that he hasn't heard about all that's been going on in Jerusalem. And I'm going to pick up in verse 24. And certain of them that were with us went to the sepulchre, so they're explaining to Jesus what happened. And certain of them that were with us went to the sepulchre and found it even uh, even so as the women had said, um, so it was just as the women had said, but saw him not. And he said unto them, O fools, and slow of hearts to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Ought not Christ have suffered these things to enter into his glory? And beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded unto them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So he accuses them of being of having a particular defect, of being slow of heart. And then beginning at Moses, he expounds to them all the scriptures and the things concerning himself. Is that so? I wanna I wanna now pause for a minute and be like, uh, and and sort of raise again that question, that second question that I ask, and say, what's the What is the thing that Jesus wants us to think about the relationship between Himself and the Scripture? And so while you're thinking about that, there's the there's the there's our the the church rendering of this, and I like this image because it does make the thing I think of when I see this image uh, from the video is what he's accusing them of being, he's saying, oh, you fools. Like, obviously, obviously he's a little different than the other people. There's no ambiguity about who of these people is Jesus. And it's like, they're not getting it. They're not getting the significance of Jesus. Oh, you fools. I like it when Jesus says a little sharp thing. Um, notice that then, so they he goes with them. He walks with them. And then he makes as if he's going to leave. Um, and uh, they enjoined him to stay with them the evening. And it came to pass as he sat at meat with them, he took bread and break and blessed it and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened and they knew him and he banished out of their sight. So the, the promise that Jesus himself made from Luke 19 is fulfilled. That is that when the ordinance is performed, it would cause remembering. And that is in fact exactly what happened. He performs the ordinance and it causes remembering in them. They know him, they learn something new. And so what then my question is, is the thing we were meant to learn about how Jesus figures in the scriptures of Israel. Does anyone want to say anything about that at this point? If not, I've got some text from Acts that we can go to.
2: Can I just say, like, it seems uh, his impression or what he's trying to convey is that, like, all of this should be very obvious to you. Right. He's just like kind of disappointed that you know, I've been like dropping hints this whole time. Right. And and so I, I, I feel like part of what he's, uh, part of what he's trying to say is this, this really, really should have been very, very obvious to you. Yeah. No, I like that. Um, and I like that also
3: as a kind of think back to that phrase that he accuses them of being slow of heart. And think about how much faster your heart moves than your mind, where sort of like something happens that triggers an emotion. Usually that comes online pretty quick. Um, That's sort of like it has a feel of obviousness in its speed. Um, whereas if you have to sort of think something through, if you're being slow-minded, it's different than being slow-hearted, I, I conjecture.
4: In the... Me. I would also observe that I'm I'm continually aware as you're talking that Luke is leading up to Acts. I mean, in the way you structured this, but also the way we understand Luke and then Acts, and and so it seems natural as a as a writer or a storyteller, if you will, that there's a very forward-looking, very um, uh, you're you're looking forward in the in in uh, at the end of Luke.
3: Yeah. Yeah. Good. And I do think that that kind of, that projected look, that arc is going to be important because in Luke, he wants to say when he says he starts at Moses and expounds all the scriptures, it's kind of like this thought of like, there's this whole story of Israel and you can't understand that story without seeing it as connecting to Jesus. And that's a little bit different than we we would have read in Matthew, where in Matthew, remember, there's just all of these sort of like, um, proof texts where it's sort of like prophet said this, Jesus did that. Prophet said it, Jesus did it. Prophet, Jesus, very reliable fulfiller of prophecy. But in Luke, it's not just the individual instances; it's this whole story that we have to sort of interpret the story as leading up to Jesus.
0: Right. I'm also thinking about um, you now some of the other things. I think you're probably going to get to, um, and that that is that Christ is. Um, You know, showing them that they need to think about this, what sometimes is a kind of nationalistic history and story from Moses on, um, not in that way, but rather um, centered in Christ rather than in a uh, kind of political, nationalistic, like separate um, kind
3: of framework. Yeah. No, I love. I love that point. Go ahead, sir. It
2: is interesting, right, that he's sort of starting at Moses, not at Adam, right? And it's like we're starting, starting at Moses here.
3: Yeah. Good. Do you want to? Do you want to just like do you want to just uh, tease us for now with what interests you about that, or should we should we leave that and come back, or do you want to say now?
2: Well, I mean, there's all sorts of places that you could start to tell the story of Jesus, right? But um, as Rebecca was talking, right, it's like, oh yeah, that might have been a very strategic, like their their understanding of the choice of where to start would have been for their purposes, not or you know, not for him. He could have started the story at any. Any point, but he's choosing a particular place to start that would have been symbolically meaningful to them. And um, you know, as, as Rebecca is saying, that that starting with Moses would be a, a sort of a nationalist kind of signifier of of where uh, at what point he feels like I I, I feel like I need you to re understand this story, yeah, or this part of the story, yeah. And that's been, so just think back to what we've done so far this year, that's been such a point of emphasis throughout
3: where it's sort of like all of the kingdom metaphors, like the sort of the the parables of the kingdom, are all meant to make you think that the kingdom is not what you had previously supposed. Um, And so it does seem like that's going to be, that's going to be, and now when the kingdom announcement goes forward to other places, it's going to continue to be surprising what the kingdom announcement is, just the way that uh, Rebecca and Jessica are saying
4: I'm, 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 that's a really important point I hadn't thought about before, so thank you. I mean, because if you start with Adam, or you start with Noah, which are the two other places that seem most obvious to start, then you're already uh, prefiguring the inclusion of all peoples. But if you start at Moses, then including non-Jews, as we're going to get to, is a, is a radical statement. I mean, that, it sets up a drama, in effect. Yeah.
3: No, very nice.
2: Right. Thanks. The story that you thought was just yours, right? Right, is mine. Yeah. Right. It's my story. It's about me. It's not actually just your story.
3: Oh man, there's so many. Good, I wish I could do chapter because there's so many good passages in Acts that are about exactly that thing. And if I were better, I would just have them all in my head right now. But ne- but instead we leave. This is this is my great pedagogical moment. We leave as a as a task for the leader.
2: <laughs> you are enough, Ryan. <laughs> okay. <laughs>
3: All right. Let's see. Let's see how Luke now thinks about. Let's see if we can sort of see any connections in Acts to what Luke has given us at the end of his first book. Drama. Wait was there was there sufficient drama there? I've heard that if you wait three seconds, it makes people feel more drawn. Two, one, okay. So first, let's think about the the rending of the veil, sort of like being before. So in Matthew, recall, the veil is so Jesus dies, and the veil is rent. In Luke, Jesus expresses he gives a whole speech about his, about what's going to happen prophetically. Um, he suffers, um, the veil is rent, he, he dies. Okay, so. Let's pick up. This is this is Peter speaking in the day of Pentecost, and he's already given a bunch of texts that we're going to look back at. But it, it, that um, remembers there's some skeptics in the audience. Um, uh, you know, it, it's like, oh, these men, new wine, all of that. Um, here's what Peter says. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God hath made that same Jesus, whom ye have crucified both lord and christ and now when they heard this they were pricked in their hearts and said unto peter and to the rest of the apostles men and brethren what shall we do um so just note that that in acts and in luke generally um whenever people are moved by words they'll often respond by asking a question about how they should act on those words that moved them and so we have some indication textually that when they hear Peter say this, as opposed to the other stuff that he said, or I guess I shouldn't, when they hear Peter say this in particular, at least, that God who made that same Jesus, whom ye have crucified, Lord and Christ, when they heard that, they were moved in a way that caused them to ask what they should do. And Peter said unto them, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and ye shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. Okay, so what is it about um, uh, the story of Jesus' death that causes the transformation in the hearts of Peter's listeners? Again, here's the the rending of the veil. Um, The order changed, and now my question is, if you think about, if you think back here to what moves the apostle or what moves the the listeners, um, how would you characterize it? What do you think? Do people want to say, so I have two questions on the table. The first is, what motivates these people to ask what they should do? Um, and the second is, is there some connection to do we have do we have anything about any any reason to think that that Luke had some metaphor in mind by the reading of the veil
2: so i'll I'll just say so my the way I've always sort of understood the reading of the veil is this is as a representation between sorrow and intimacy right and just sort of like when something truly sorrowful happens, there is a closeness that can come out of that that's a, how I've understood it but i'm i'm i guess the question that is now arising in my mind is what's the causal order right like what's the what's the order of that um is it the intimacy and that causes the sorrow is it the sorrow that causes the intimacy like what is going on So, i don't know if that's kind of where you're getting but that's what's going on in my brain
3: the question about causal order you say why would you
5: think about that just
2: (laughs) Just, shocker
5: It, it also, oh, go ahead. Sorry. Well, it, it does seem like um, the thing that makes them sad is the reminder that they killed that man and that God made that man too, right? So, this was you crucified Jesus and God made that same Jesus, and that Jesus is both Lord and Christ. And so, that reminder that's like, oh my gosh, it's this, you know, we, maybe not us specifically, but we as a people killed this Jesus. And then Luke, I just feel like if there's a metaphor, it's sort of like the the rending of the temple. Jesus symbolizes the temple. as like this symbol of the Jewish people Um, and that Jesus wasn't some criminal or outsider or imposter who was inverting their culture, but he was actually sort of a true symbol of it. And when they killed him, they sort of uh, killed the temple in some ways. Um, anyway, that's how I, that's what I think. Of. Okay. Yeah,
0: Nathan, um, I mean, I'm really thinking now about, um, kind of this reminder that they've crucified both Lord and Christ, right? So it's the God of the old Testament and the redeemer. And you've like not recognized. It's like, this is this, the same person, right? Um, mm-hmm. and then what is that? What is that? effect then on kind of coming to terms with with that
3: yeah good good question so here as we're thinking about rebecca's question what's the what's the effect of coming to terms with that that's what i to get to in a second it's just the, that question that, that you raised but i want to now do another insta poll which is here's the here's the question if you're a reader of Matthew and you're a reader of Luke and you just separate those totally in your mind, would you think that the metaphor of the veil or that would you think that the meeting of the veils being rent is the same in Matthew or Luke? Or would you think as a reader something different if the order switched for you? So this is just a question about you as a reader. Would you be the same meaning or a different meaning? Does everyone understand the question? All right. Two votes, same meaning. Who votes, different meaning. Oh, interesting. So, who did not vote? You have, there's a forced choice situation here.
2: Having <laughs> <laughs> I mean, seen a survey, just kidding. First choice are bad in many directions.
3: <laughs>
2: you know, there, I have an opinion. There, I have a clear opinion there. I mean, to me, the difficulty is, is that in both cases, my interpretation is that it's sort of about love, right? That there's some. Connection about love and sacrifice, and so like fundamentally, it's not different in my mind. But sort of the, but but I can see how you might make a case for like the interpretation might might be different. Does that make sense?
3: Let me pitch to you. Let me pitch to you a difference and see if that. Does anybody else want to? Does anyone else want to say on this? Yeah. To,
4: To me, the 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 rending in Matthew as a reader, would read as um, God, what we would say God the Father, sorrow being expressed by the rending, whereas the rending in Luke reads as Christ's ascension into into heaven. And, and so the, the, uh, uh, the narrative is whether it's a focus on God the Father who continues to be, whom we worship, to Luke's being, Christ being magnified as the god whom now we are going to be baptized in whose name who we will now reflect as as god
2: i sort of think of the matthew version again i i'm i, I have no qualifications here so but the way i have understood the matthew interpretation is like okay so the atonement is sort of like completed and that then Sort of rends the separation between um humans and god right and so it's like the the atonement is this thing that sort of rends rends our separation um and and is consequently like this great act of love the completion of of the the thing that starts with the fall right um but in luke it is a little bit different it's sort of like there is this uh the it's, it's a little bit different right so there is some sort of rending of the veil which is like there's sorrow and it's all these dark things are sort of happening and then it is the act of that barrier being removed that then sort of allows him to uh to be com- to be done with his with, with his mission Right. So uh, but both of them, to me, are sort of it's about the atonement, about intimacy, about separation and and then togetherness. So that's why I say it's like similar, but different.
3: Yeah. And just, just to offer, a final, I think these are both excellent points. I love both these readings. It can mean multiple different things. Um, but just following on with that, there is this there's a kind of thought which sort of like you can see that Luke is really concerned. So Matthew thinks like Jesus dies and that death is salvific. Uh, the death of Jesus is connected to salvation in some way. Uh, in Luke, um, there's Jesus is doing all this suffering, and that suffering is salvific in the sense that it motivates people to change their hearts. Um, and so, the suffering that Jesus does itself, sort of like you see, is rending. You could see it, you have, on that reading could rend the veil of the temple, could be the salvific making thing. Um, here's one of my favorite talks recently, Kristen and he. Who is it? Uh, uh, a counselor in the General Relief Society presidency, I believe. She talks about forgiving uh, someone in her family. Um, and she says, she's sort of like, she she cites the scripture that isn't given very often. She says, I have been given, so she talks about going through the process of forgiveness. And then she says, I've been given a new heart, one that has felt the deep and abiding love of a personal savior who stayed beside me. Um, and that actually sort of is a different way of thinking about hearts than we sometimes see in the scripture. So think of a, now in Jeremiah, the one thing God can do is he can write on your heart. So it's sort of like the part closest to your emotions that makes things most obvious can contain the law, as Jeremiah said. Sort of like borrowing from Jessica's thought earlier about the obviousness of the, the thing. But another thing that God can do is give you a new heart. Um, and that's her reference in Ezekiel. Um, and so there's this thought that part of what it is is to live a saved life, to sort of be, have a, to redeem your life, to be a redeemed person is to have not just the thing written, not just the law written on your heart, but to have a new thing from, uh, to have a new heart, and that that heart is a gift from God. And so there's this connection all the way back that we still have, and I wanted to, to mention her talk, that we still have in currency this thought that the change in your heart can be something that God gives you. Um, and it sort of it sounds like the way we talk about the atonement in that way. I also love in Ezekiel that the thing that God gives is a, a heart of flesh. He replaces the heart of stone and gives the heart of flesh. Um, so it's still a human heart that you receive. It's not some other kind of heart. It's still a human heart, but you just have a new one. So it's not that you, you need to get rid of your humanity. Anyway, I love that talk. If you haven't if you haven't read that talk, have a, have a look at that. There's a lot of nuance there. All right. I'm just going to keep rolling because I'm now coming up against what this, uh, unless somebody wants to talk about that. I was supposed to end at five of the hour. Is that right? thereabouts um so just just uh take this take this question for home what what how is the connection between christ christ suffering and uh the the gift of a, a new heart that god can give All right i'm not gonna i'm not gonna ask you about that though because instead i'm gonna quickly go to see if luke can make good on what jesus says to the disciples on the way to a man. um what's about seeing jesus as the fulfillment of the scripture starting in moses as we talked about. And uh, in fact, right out right out of the gate, as Peter starts preaching, he's then going to use the story of Israel in a way that sets it up that reinterprets that story as leading up to Jesus. And here's one example. I have like three of these because I always have too many things. Oh man, that's a lot of text. I'm just gonna keep reading so I can read fast. Is that all right? Um, for David's so he's this so says, Peter, he's talking about David. For David speaketh concerning him, I foresaw the Lord always before my face, for he's on my right hand that I should not be moved. So Peter right now is citing Psalm 8. That's what he's that's what he's starting with. Therefore did my heart rejoice, and my tongue was glad. Moreover, my flesh shall rest in hope, because thou shalt not leave my soul in hell, neither wilt thou suffer thy holy one to see corruption. And so there's this question about Psalm 8 that whose soul is not going to rest in hell and who is the holy one who's not going to see corruption? Um, And now here's Peter talking again after his quotation of Psalm 8. Men and brethren, let me speak freely unto you of the patriarch David, that he is both dead and buried, and his sepulcher is with us today. And so I love this moment because Peter is sort of like saying like, no no disrespect to David, let me speak freely concerning David, but he is dead. His sepulchre is with us today. So here's two possible interpretations he might have started with. That the holy one who would not see corruption was David, or that the holy one who would not see corruption was someone else. And now Peter says, like, his sepulchre is with us. David is dead. So what was that scripture of Israel about? Therefore, Peter says, being a prophet and knowing that God, so he sort of says David was a prophet, and knowing that God had sworn an oath to him that the fruit of his loins, according to the flesh, he would raise up Jesus to sit on his throne. So here he's citing Second Samuel, and chapter and verse are not in my head right now. Ah, I'm supposed to have this book. I've got a bunch of books around me you can't see, but they're supposed to make me look smart. Does that look smart now? Good. What if I had a thicker one?
0: Hold
3: uh-huh. <laughs> on. Anyway, David is a prophet. Knowing that God had sworn an oath to him that the fruit of his loins, according to the flesh, this is 2 Samuel somewhere, 7 maybe, um, he would raise up Christ to sit on a throne. He's seeing this, the spake of the resurrection of Christ, that his soul had not left, it would not be left in hell, neither his flesh did see corruption. So how does Peter interpret David um, uh, to the people in Pentecost? What was the... What is the thing that he's trying to clear up? What might they have thought? And what does Peter want them to think instead?
5: They might have thought that this promise is about David, but he's saying, no, no, it's, insofar it's about David, it's about David's seed one day becoming Jesus and then the promise being uh, Jesus, right? Yeah. And the, the little crucial link there is David was a prophet. The prophets don't just talk about
3: themselves. They talk about the future um so notice that now we're seeing so now this is back to there's a bunch of other cases i'm not gonna have time to do all of them but this is just supposed to overwhelm you with the possibilities of these cases of similar things happening where peter will go back to some scriptures um he'll find something that was ambiguous and then he'll say that thing was part of the story leading up to jesus so Peter is now doing, he's making good on exactly the way that Jesus said you had to read the scriptures of Israel. Starting with Moses, it's a story that's about Jesus from the beginning. So this is an interesting thing that the way you do interpret the past text is with these. Um, I just made that as a bunch of assertions because I don't have time if I'm going to do this next thing that I want to do. So but think about that. Think about in general, how should we understand the relationship between Jesus and scripture? Alright. I've got like six minutes. So we can either do we now have to make a choice. We can either do Paul at Athens or we can do Paul at Ephesus. Any votes. Nobody cares. I'm gonna do Athens since it's next on my slides and I don't like going out of order. And no one cared that much about Ephesus. Although the Ephesus story is really fun, so give it a give it a try.
0: I'll also say you can have more than six minutes, so
3: Well, I hate to I hate to impose on, on folks. It's like it's a long time to listen for an hour. i have been to meetings before. We'll see how we do after this. And the question is, what's the relation? And Rebecca already, Rebecca and Jessica sort of raised some points about this between political identity and, and religious identity. Um, or another way of thinking about it is, how should you as a Christian think about your citizenship? Okay, so here we go. Um, I'm just going to keep going fast by reading my own self. I'll let this... That's all right. So Paul is now um, in Athens. A bunch of stuff has happened. Fast forward. And he's disputing in a synagogue with the Jews and with devout persons at the market daily that met with him. Certain philosophers of the Epicureans and the Stoics encountered him. And some said, what is this babbler? And the, the commentaries all agree that a babbler is like the little bird that picks up seeds as it goes along, just like making its living off scraps, which I think is a fun metaphor. Um, some say he seemeth to be a setter forth of strange gods because he preached unto them Jesus in the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Eurobacus uh, and said, May we know of this new doctrine whereof thou speakest? Is what this new doctrine whereof thou speakest? For thou bringest certain strange things to our ears, and we don't know what they mean. Some people think that this is a reference to Plato and Xenophon, or at least that it's kind of like Plato and Xenophon who accused Socrates of the same thing. So it might not be a reference exactly, but a thing to notice is that around about those times there was a bunch of Greek texts about people being asked if they were bringing strange new gods. And that was kind of a scary question, if you know those stories. That was a bit ominous. If people were like, are you bringing some strange gods around these parts? That that sometimes could go badly. People could take... People could take that in a politically offensive way. What does Paul say? Paul says, as I passed by. Oh, so first he says. Got to make sure I do this if I'm in Paul stood on Mars Hill, said he met of Athens. So now we hear his speech. He met of Athens. I perceive that you're in all things too superstitious. And here, actually, depending on the translation you use.'" It can alternatively say very religious. So some people in the commentaries think that they, he's flattering them. I perceive you're very religious. If I were just to say that to you, if I, I could say that to my students and they would appreciate it. Um, but if I said to my students, you're too superstitious, they probably would not appreciate it. So some people think he needs it as an insult. Some people think he needs it as flattery. And some people think that he means it as an insult that only the reader can detect, but would sort of go over their heads as flattery, which would be a fun one, if that's what it was. Um, For as I passed by, I beheld your devotions. So remember, he's been accused of bringing some strange gods, and he sees the inscription to the unknown god in verse twenty-three. Whom therefore ye ignorantly worship, declare I unto you. So look, you're already you're already worshiping an unknown god. That's already part of your devotion. It's already internal to your practice to worship this god. I'm just telling you about that god. Whenever I do my edit, my extemporaneous editorializing, I don't know if that helps anyone. That's just how it that's how it sounds in my mind. And I just like saying how it sounds in my mind. So, apologies. God that made the world and all things therein, see, he's the Lord of heaven and earth, verse 24, dwelleth in the temples not made with hands. So Paul is saying something against idolatry. Um, neither is he worshipped with man's hands as though he needed anything. So this is sort of, he doesn't, Paul doesn't think the cultic sacrifice, you don't, you don't need that. See, he giveth to all life and breath and all things. And hath made one blood of one blood all nations of men, for to dwell on the face of the earth, and hath determined the times appointed the bounds of their habitation, that they should seek the Lord. Okay. Um so this is a frequent theme in Acts, um, that God is not the God of the the idols. Um, and there he says something that Seneca also says. And Paul, there's enough of the things that sound like Seneca that a couple centuries later someone would actually make some Pauline fan fiction of dialogues between Paul and Seneca, where Seneca is just sort of they're like, oh, we agree on a bunch of stuff. Um, and in fact, um, there's uh, Seneca uh, as a saint uh, in the the this is like this, this is the Middle Ages somewhere, this is 1300 or something like this. Um, so it turns out Seneca, he's on the team. He was on the team like all those people. That's what Paul, you know, I mean, or, you know, things like that. And then Paul actually makes a more specific reference. So uh, uh, um, a popular poem at the time, and we know it's popular because it was Greek but translated into Latin, it appears in a bunch of different places, is Erratus's Phenomena. Um, and he says, as your own poets have said, we are his offspring. And in fact, that is what Erratus is saying, although it sounds a little bit different over there. I won't read you that intertext. Um uh, but Paul is saying like, oh, look, it's just like just like Seneca says, just like Eratus says, for as much as we are the offspring of God, we are not to think of the God as being gold or silver or stones, graven images. Again, similar thing as Seneca and his epistles. God is not about the money. That's not what God is. Um, and then Paul is going to pivot away from the the Stoics and away from the poets. And now he's going to talk about Jesus. Um, verse thirty and thirty one moves from Greek philosophy to Christian doctrines. So there's Aratus, and then thirty one again. It's the same things. Um, he was going to judge everyone in righteousness, um, and when they oh sorry, he, let's see, blah blah blah. He commands everyone to repent, um, and he's going to raise them from the dead. So it's about again the resurrection. These same themes. And when they heard the resurrection, that some mocked, and others said, "We'll hear thee again." on this matter. All right. So I went through that story in a whirlwindy kind of way. But the question at the end of it was, how was Paul thinking about the relationship between his religion and the community, the already organized community he was talking about? I went through that fast, but did you have any thoughts as I was going through about how Paul was imagining The identity that those people already have.
2: Well, I mean, I think it's hard to escape the connection with Annan and King Aloni, right? Where he's saying, okay, all right, you believe in the great spirit. All right, let's start there, right? And there's a sort of sense in which, like, I, I, you know, my God can work in this, you know, there, there there's some things I can work with here, right? And, um, and, and I, it's kind of an interesting, like, it's an interesting move to say that like not to start off with you're wrong, right? but rather like, okay, here's here's where we you know here's a good starting point. we can start here and 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 build something that makes sense to you and your community and your culture and and not I,
4: I, I hear the same sort of thing i I mean, I just picture Paul in a in a Social, political sense, he's really introducing a new god in a world that has multiple gods, and and so what I hear is him saying, "It's not really all that new." You have the, I can tie to here, I can tie to here, I can tie to here, and so you, it's, um, it's not as radical as as it might sound in the first first blush. Yeah,
3: yeah I love I love the line where he's like, "Look, you're already worshiping." this God. I'm just describing a God
2: you're already worshiping.
3: It's part of the devotions.
2: So please don't kill me.
3: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Any other thoughts about this?
0: Well I th- I think we get just a little bit, you know, an acknowledgement that there that there is tension. Like how do we um how do our I- identities cohere and how can we in different ways, right? Um, do you have to identify, you know, according to this way that you have always within your kind of society or, you know, kind of historically within your society identified or can we expand in new ways and live together um, as one blood you know, despite these differences in history, in culture, in whatever. Yeah,
3: you No. Know, and here and here's one of those places where, you know, Paul says, where was it, that, yeah, now, just, you already made this reference, yeah, made of one blood all nations of men to dwell on the face of the earth. Um, and that's just, that's the, that's one of those passages that sort of like, seems like it's in the background. Like when you were giving your comment earlier about the way the kingdom is different, the kingdom of heaven is going to be different than other kingdoms.
2: I think one of the interesting questions here is whether he is, whether his decision to kind of come in this in this gentle way is a strategic decision, right, or a sincere decision, right? Is it is it like, I'm going to strategically do this in this sort of soft way so you don't kill me, so you kind of understand where I'm coming from, but you know, at the end of the day, like, it is a strange God, right? Like, at the end of the day, you are actually going to have to, like, give up a lot of your stuff, but, but I need to kind of, like, warm you up so that your heart is there to be able to hear it. Versus a sincere sort of, like, no, 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 you are already worshiping this God. I am just here to give you more information about that, right? And and so I, it's hard to kind of know whether he... Like what his approach to identity here is like? Is it like we all have identities? They are how we understand the world. They have how we experience the world, and um, and uh, and so that's great. But you know, you are going to have to give up all your identities other than Christian. But I just need to kind of like warm you up to get there. Or like all of these identities are in fact already part of. Uh, the, of the of christianity i think that's a, a, a an interesting question to to wonder like what he's is this a sort of strategic or a sincere approach
4: mm-hmm. well so but, all, and, all, and that all... becomes a question of whether of what is christianity i mean it, there's a there's a there's an ongoing debate at least in my experience of whether christian christianity in paul's work is syncretic is is adopting these and including a number of different views um or is really a radical new 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 understanding and i I your question, Jessica, I mean and I mean asks that question in effect.
0: So so my sense is that I mean I think we remember too that like this is this idea of inclusion (laughs) Gentile inclusion is is new to Paul too, right? And so, you know, some of what Ryan started out with is like this shift in heart and like look at the scriptures from Moses on and and this is not about your, you know, political identity in this particular way you have thought about scripture. It's about me and I'm here for all people. And this is the message then that you've got to bring to the rest of the world um so i you know i think that anyway so i i'm i'm on side paul <laughs> it's sincere and he's had to grapple with this himself um and maybe maybe we can see reflected in this some of the way that he's coming to terms with with this new way of thinking about the the, the kingdom and. Um, christian identity and verses anyway
2: well it's very personal to him right yeah yeah he's had to he had to go through a very radical reassessment of his identity that was what was required of him and so this is really kind of generous like assuming that he's being very sincere here and that this is like no really you are already worshiped it's it's very uh generous um uh offer to them seeing as that's not exactly how he was he was able to be converted like his conversion had to be this total break from you know half-life um so yeah
0: yeah yeah maybe like he wants to save them from (laughs) that.
5: i feel i mean for me it's it reminds me of this debate we have all the time in the church where it's like well you know is there some doctrinal core that's most important um, and that is intention or competing with all this church culture. Uh, and I have lots of friends who are really, really anti-Mormon culture because it's so... I mean, and they, they're they always setting it up as in opposition to these pure doctrinal truths that we're supposed to real... that are supposed to be the true core of our church. I have a friend who is... I don't think it's a coincidence that he's a convert to the church. And so he really, really... Um, down on what he sees as like Mormon culture, as all these things that are outside, outside the law in some ways, uh, and that we all just need to get back focused on our our core doctrines and beliefs. You know, he was telling me just the other day, um, like it, it, we should stop all these. Like we we began arguing about singing patriotic hymns in church, and then it sort of spiraled into all sorts of other um, related topics. But I feel like the, I mean, I'm very much on. Up- My perspective here is, like all what seems like all young millennials and and Gen Z um, members of this this generational cohort, I had this painful faith crisis that made a lot of those um, core doctrines hard for me to reach, hard for me to access and feel the same uh, deep commitment to that I used to feel. And so it just made the cultural stuff so much more important to me because I... It was really important to me to, that I'm a member of this faith. I want to continue being a part of it. But feeling the way I used to feel about these core truth claims and, and and this covenant path was very difficult to me. And so then all of these other sort of cultural things became the glue. And so for me, when people are like, oh, no, you know, we have to get rid of all of, all of this culture because in some ways it's opposed to the doctrinal foundations, it's really painful for me because they're like, well, but. But that's the stuff I'm. I'm. That's easier for me to access, right? So I don't know. I don't know where Paul is in there. If he's, if he's more on my side or more on my friend's side.
4: Yeah, you know, thinking, thinking ahead to to the letters which we will be talking about the, for much of the rest of the year, Paul is dealing with, what we might even call schism. I mean, he's dealing with different communities that are, more or less in line and answering questions and. Um, some of those letters say, "Hey, you get in line," and some of them say, in an expansive way, "We can include these all these ideas that you already have." And I, 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 I think both.
3: No, I, I really appreciate all of these comments. Any, any before, before I feel like I should end official time now. Any, anything else? Anyone wants wants to say before the before we before the before I end? All right. Uh skip, skip, skip. Uh Rebecca, is it appropriate for me to end with a brief testimony? Is that a thing that I can yeah. You know? Um, so so I'll do that do that part of this is the this is the Latter day Saint testimony part of the lesson. Um so Jesus tells the disciples um, that all the scriptures are leading up to him, that he is in that story from the start of the story. And to get them that they have to sort of reimagine that story a little bit. Um, And that is, in fact, how Peter and Paul talk about the scriptures after that. They begin with the prophets. They begin with the beliefs of people around about these parts. um, And then they use those to say that um, to preach Christ and Christ crucified and Christ resurrected. It's important to get to that point because it's always that thing for Luke uh, that changes the heart, that takes you from being slow of heart and gives uh, gives you a new heart. I share with you my testimony of atonement, which is.
0: Amen. Thank you so much, Ryan um, and Tessica and Nathan. Um, Next month, we'll be back to our usual schedule with lessons on both the second and fourth Sunday of the month. We're looking forward to having Tanisha Zandamela with us on August 13th. Uh, Nathan.
5: our father in heaven we're so grateful for this beautiful sabbath day the opportunity we have to gather as friends and fellow saints to think about our savior and his gospel and how we can best live it and and commit to it we're grateful for our membership in this church and our our membership in this community and we we pray that we can reach out to the people around us to lift them and and help them feel more a part of this community. And we say this in the name of Jesus Christ, amen.
0: Greetings, my name is Rebecca Deschweinitz and I'm thrilled to serve as a board member at the Dialogue Foundation and as one of the hosts of Dialogue Gospel Study. In each episode, which we record live the second and fourth Sunday of every month, we welcome esteemed speakers from a variety of backgrounds to share their insights and perspectives on the Come Follow Me lessons. Our aim is to spark meaningful conversations about the scriptures, to connect them to our personal experiences and to our understandings and explorations of the gospel. To stay in the loop with our upcoming lessons and this opportunity to engage with Mormon thought, culture, and belief, be sure to visit dialoguejournal.com and sign up for our newsletter. By doing so, you'll receive updates and timely links to join our live stream lessons. Additionally, you can catch up on our past guests and episodes by subscribing to Dialogue Journal on YouTube, Facebook, or wherever you listen to podcasts.
1: Dialogue
4: Podcast Network.